0: And so to get back to your question of like how does spiritual practice interface with work practice a lot of it is around the definition of yourself who are you what values do you actually hold there might be certain values that you espouse because it's they, they sound good or because it's socially required to do those things and you may be living a different set of values so i think to be uh, mindful enough to know what your actual lived values are, mm-hmm. and then to be looking to refine those are really important principles.
1: Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed David Weekly of Medquarter, a application that allows families to understand what their doctors are telling them after they've had a very important meeting uh, with the doctor where the doctor gives them a bunch of information. You basically just record that information and it'll give you a spit out of the information that went over with, the, with your doctor. Uh, David has some really interesting insights into how a spiritual life can impact your work life, a lot of key learnings about decision-making from his long career as an executive in, in, in Silicon Valley. Uh, really highly recommend you listen to the whole episode if you enjoy it, please find me at stuartallsop.substack.com. Uh, sign up for my blog where I'm sharing exclusive content and more interviews like this. And also a daily newsletter, a very short newsletter that tries to aim to give value uh, and inspiration into your inbox every day. Um, and very short, very digestible. Um, and, you know, just let me know what you think. Let me know your thoughts. Uh, find David on Twitter. Uh, interact with him. He's got some really, really valuable insights in here, and I, I, hope, I hope you find value in them, and I hope you have a great day. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here is David Weekly. He's the CEO and co-founder of um, Medcorder, uh, and I'll let him explain more about what that is and what, uh, what he's doing.
0: Great. Um, thanks so much for having me on the show. Of course. Yeah. yeah. So MedQuarter is an app that helps patients record the content of the conversation that they're having with a doctor. Oftentimes when you sit down with a doctor, particularly if you're facing a disease condition like cancer and you're meeting with your oncologist, they have a lot of information to convey to you in a very short period of time. They may be referring to words you're not familiar with in terms of the medication, in terms of diagnosis, prognosis, treatment treatment, and some of this information can end up life or death for you as the patient. And that's why we think it's really important for you to be able to record that consultation, to come back to it, to share it with your family, and to thus best internalize what it is that the doctor had to say, to be compliant with the doctor's wishes for your care, and to best understand what your options are uh, coming up. Yeah, so yeah. that's what the MedQuarter app is. It's uh, available today on both the iOS and the Android app stores. Uh, we just started this uh, a couple months ago, and we are off to the races.
1: Cool. Yeah, I imagine. I mean, I've been in those situations where the doctor is conveying a large amount of like very emotional information to me, uh, and then oftentimes I get out of there, and I'm just like, Phew. Yeah, it was not. You know, I, I got I got one thing out of that, and now yeah. was like that I'm in, I'm in trouble. So it's like that's a really good idea.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, As a pilot, it's interesting because they teach you the physiology of what happens to you when you're undergoing an emergency. And one of the first things that you lose if you're piloting a plane and you notice that you're having an emergency is you lose your hearing. Mm. Um, so you just wow. lose your ability to pick out speech, discern speech, understand what people are saying. Wow. So it's very easy to take that understanding of how the brain works and how the brain drops certain information and then apply it to a meeting where your oncologist says, I'm so sorry, but it looks like it's stage four. You are not going to hear anything else that they have to say after that. Whoa. Yeah.
1: Wow. And it's so interesting because, you know, we're recording this right now and, and we're entering this age where audio seems to be such an important part of what people are doing. Why do you think that is? Why do you think audio is becoming so important right now?
0: So I think it's actually more particular than audio. It's speech in particular. Mm -hmm. And this maps to the human brain and how the brain produces output and how it consumes input. So our highest bandwidth output, I would argue, is speech. Mm -hmm. We can output an incredible amount of information very, very efficiently with speech. We've got dedicated areas of our brain that are uh, focused on helping us distill thoughts and represent them as speech. The same, interestingly enough, is not true of reading and writing. Those are invented technologies. We don't have dedicated areas of the brain built up over hundreds Mm. of thousands of years, millions of years uh, from evolution, right? Um, I would say from the input perspective, the highest bandwidth input people have is visually, right? So if you look at where computing interfaces should go, uh, independent of the difficulty of implementing those interfaces, but rather looking at the fact that they have to interface with humans, it's very natural that these devices would receive speech from a human and present a visual display back to them. And it's amazing to me that it's only now in 2019 when we're finally starting to get an ecosystem of devices that you speak to and then display information back to you. So I would argue that the last couple of years of what's happened with audio assistants, so uh, things like Siri, things like Alexa, have actually been not living up to their potential, largely because they're attempting to respond in the same medium. You speak to it, it speaks back to you. And that's a very low bandwidth exchange. What you want is you speak to it and it shows things back to you. Interesting.
1: And this gets into the personal computing industry because the major innovation that Apple had was a graphical interface, like a new graphical interface, right? And that was a new way that we communicate with computers. And for like 20 years, that was you put input through typing something and then you get back a visual representation of it and now what you're talking about is is instead of typing, which is very low bandwidth, and then we've gotten back a step and now we're on thumbs and everything like that. And now, we're, yeah. now we're kind of leapfrogging, but it is still, for me, it's still not a habit for me to talk to my computer and expect something to happen. I feel like for young people that might be changing. Have you noticed anything like that?
0: Well, I've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old son. It, uh, no. They're both sons and Uh, For both of them, some of their first structured interactions they had with a computing device was talking to Um, Google, talking to Alexa. Um, So they've had a chance to play a little bit with an iPad, we limit screen time. Uh, And some of the motor mechanics there are pretty straightforward. There was a a funny video I saw last week with a chimpanzee who is navigating Instagram on on a phone, right? Uh So a lot of these tactile interfaces are so intuitive that you don't even have to be human to understand how to uh, navigate them. But I feel like we're getting to uh, a similar place with uh, speech devices where speech is uh, very natural for us as humans. Like I said, there's dedicated brain centers that we have for production of speech. And I think it's going to be very natural and intuitive that you'll be able to speak to devices to the degree where I would anticipate very soon people will especially people who grew up in this era will start feeling like computing devices that can't understand my speech must be broken in the same way as if you show somebody who's grown up with an ipad and you present them with a desktop computer what's the first thing they do they go and try and press things on the screen it doesn't work and Uh it's broken your screen is broken your computer is broken right because i can't touch it right in Uh the same way i'm talking to it it doesn't understand me it must be broken Uh you should you should get this thing fixed and have you guys
1: been finding finding that the speech to text is at the point now that it is reliable. Um, so yeah,
0: it's useful enough to be skimmable. Okay. I wouldn't count on it for being a canonical mm-hmm. uh, I think we're gonna get there very very soon particularly as we look to have humans help supplement uh, the transcripts So having a human tra- medical transcriptionist take a look at a machine produced transcript in the audio and fix it to be correct is actually much faster and cheaper though therefore than uh, Having them kind of tabula rasa try and put together the transcript. Yeah. So I I think we're gonna see uh, some of this hybrid approach where we have the computer do a first pass that'll get increasingly good and then uh, a human do a second pass where it is important that it be canonically correct.
1: Interesting. Um, so I'd love to get into uh, why you started MedQuarter uh, and Just a little bit more about that. What were the the initial kind of thinkings and experiences that led to that?
0: So the same terrible set of experiences that get a lot of people into the healthcare industry who didn't anticipate getting into the healthcare industry. Uh, Eight years ago, my mom got lung cancer and passed pretty quickly. It's about three months soup to nuts. Uh, the year after that, my brother got glioblastoma, stage four brain cancer, uh, very improbably he has survived and thrived over the intervening uh, six, seven years since that happened, um, which is amazing because they they told him with very high confidence that there was just no way he was going to make it more than 18 months. Mm. Um, and he's, he's done great, uh, completely uh, remission free. Uh, my dad then got prostate cancer about uh, two, two and a half years ago, and a little over a year ago, he passed. Mm-hmm. So three times over, I got to see what the patient journey was like for a complex care condition. You know, I've seen doctors just in terms of annual physicals and the like, but as a 20-something and then an early 30-something, it was a very straightforward interaction, right? They ask you some basic questions. If you're overweight, they ask you to lose some weight, and they say, like, come and see me in a year or two. It's cool. Um, when you start so so um, i was used to much lower bandwidth exchanges And when I saw how high bandwidth some of these consults were, where it would be 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and they'd present you with an enormous amount of incredibly relevant information, they would expect you had all of your questions all teed up, any data you wanted to present, any possible clinical trials that were relevant, um, all very efficiently presented and then very efficiently consuming information from them. And how improbable that was, even for a very well-educated, very attentive patient, Uh, It it was very surprising. So one of the things that my dad started doing is he started asking the physician for permission to go and record the consult. And he would just use the uh, voice memo app on the iPhone that he had. And he would then email that as an attachment to me. And I would manually transcribe it. I'd summarize it. I'd pull out the salient bits. And if there were Keywords I wasn't familiar with, I'd provide links to Wikipedia, WebMD, stuff like that, so that Mm. uh, other people could also learn more about what was going on, what the options were. And then we'd update a Google Doc with sort of the disease progression, what we knew, what the options were, all of that. Um, And that process was pretty involved. It took a lot of time. It took a lot of effort. I was happy to put it in because it was something I could do as an adult child who was 3,000 miles away from my dad uh, facing a... lethal condition. But uh, I felt like there had to be a better way. Mm -hmm. There had to be a way that we could bring this kind of workflow of encouraging patients to record their consults, of automatically transcribing those consultations, of immediately sharing that out with loved ones, uh, and and then convening folks uh, around a virtual table to talk about what's going on, Mm -hmm. what the options are, and trying to strategize for the best possible outcome for the patient. Mm -hmm. So that was the genesis of MedCorp. It was actually when my dad was, uh, still around, mm-hmm. um, effectively productizing the the flow that we had worked out together.
1: Mm. That's uh, hits home, hits home for me too because my 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 dad just recently got um, uh, he had had leukemia, uh, and it's now been remi- in uh, in remission for a year. I think. Uh, it, what is it in remission or? Is that, uh, yeah.
0: He's, he's he's healthy, healthy, he's <laughs> healthy. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, and so and that was you know, and I actually started one of the reasons I started this podcast was because I started interviewing him while he was sick, mm, um, mm. and 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 basically getting you know all all of his life, and we actually did it through Zoom, um, and because he was in the hospital, uh, kind of because of his immune system wasn't strong enough to be around other people. So yeah. uh, so so that was a huge reason I started this podcast, and it's mm-hmm. really interesting that 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 uh, these intense emotional experiences can, can create something that's, uh, cool and hopefully u- useful for other people as well. Um, and so I'd love to, to get into kind of like a, a spiritual practice and other things. Cause as I mentioned before the show, we, we were talking about how, um, how I'm kind of doing an investigation into how a spiritual life has manifestations outside the spiritual life into and, manif- and into a physical material world. And, and has byproducts like that what is your take on that idea and maybe if you could give people insight into your into your practice into your spiritual practice mm-hmm.
0: so I, i'm in the middle of actually reading uh Ray uh, principles huh. uh, which is a, a book i would definitely recommend even though i haven't finished it yet um, a lot of the focus on decision quality uh, taking a look at the decisions that you're making why are you making those decisions Uh, Thinking about how you could make better decisions and then codifying why do you personally make the kinds of decisions that you do? Writing that down and sharing it with other people to give them your operating manual So you'll know how I'm going to react Mm -hmm. when you present me with a certain set of things, right? Uh is really helpful for other people to interact with you and it's helpful for you yourself to make decisions more consistently uh, more quickly and more effectively Right, um, which which I think is really interesting. I, I feel almost embarrassed that I'm here in my 40s. I've had a pretty long career. It's the third company I've started. I've worked for Facebook, for Google, for a bunch of other companies, um, and I'm only now starting to really give some mindful practice into thinking about decision quality, mm-hmm. that that wasn't something that I learned in school. Uh, And despite the fact that it is so important just to understand yourself in terms of how do you want to make decisions? uh, What is the quality of your decisions independent of the outcome whether things turned out positively or negatively? It it could be that you just got lucky or unlucky Mm -hmm. one way or the other Um, And then refining that to get better at your decision-making quality is, is really important And so to get back to your question of like how does spiritual practice interface with work practice a lot of it is around the definition of yourself who are you what values do you actually hold there might be certain values that you espouse because it's they, they sound good or because it's socially required to do those things and you may be living a different set of values so i think to be Uh, mindful enough to know what your actual lived values are, Mm -hmm. and then to be looking to refine those are really important principles. And the spiritual principles, the beliefs that you have about truth, how important is it that you tell the truth? How important is it that you know yourself? Uh, How important is it to do the right thing even when you're not being observed? Those are, to a certain extent, spiritual questions, and yet they directly impact the kind of choices that you're going to make in your business career. So I think the two have a very close interplay in that sense.
1: Mm. And to me, when I've been trying to find out my values, it is an exploration. So it's not something that like my mind, my prefrontal cortex is like, these are my values, this is what I'm gonna to stick to. It's like more looking at my actions, like you said, looking at my decisions and finding out what is the yeah. theme in those decisions. And then, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So I think we're coming to discover that the way humans work is not how we thought it worked. <laughs> um, so the, the, the naive mental model is that we have this thing called uh, consciousness. And your consciousness makes important decisions. And so any time you're deciding, how am I going to act? How am I going to respond to this situation? That 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 flows through this consciousness, which is this um, self-consistent seat of personality. right? And what we're actually discovering is that the brain works in a very different way, where the subconscious circuits that we have actually make the decision, Mm. and then post-hoc, Th- that information about what decision was made is then fed to what we know of as our consciousness, which mostly just produces post ration- hoc <laughs> rationalizations about why that was the appropriate choice, right? Uh-huh. Now, you could be, there's, there's two really importantly different ways of looking at this. One is uh, the sort of cynic looks at that and says, okay, well, finally, we have proof that there's no free will and uh-huh. we're all screwed, right? Uh-huh. We're, we're all just slaves to habit. and there's nothing we can do about it. And the, the optimist says, no, 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 no. no. What that teaches us is that in the moment it's already too late. Right. The point in time when you are presented with, whether it's an emergency or a difficult decision, a critical ethical decision, to a certain degree, that decision has already been made by the time you get to the present. So there's not, there's very little you can do about it in, in, in the present. And I wanna put a very important asterisk about it uh, on that, which is you can recognize it's an important thing to think about, give yourself time to perform those more difficult, higher level cognitive processes, and then make a better decision. And that's actually the the point of the wonderful book, Thinking Fast and Slow, mm-hmm. right, is that we've got these sort of lazy default circuits and we've got these much more expensive, hard to use, Mm -hmm. uh, uncomfortable to use Mm -hmm. uh, detailed thinking processes, right? But there's the other aspect of that is how do we reprogram our automatic responses to be the kind of responses that we want? And the answer there is reflection, Mm -hmm. right? To think about where did I reflexively make certain classes of decisions? And are those in alignment with the kind of person I want to be? And asking that question, implicit in that, is the possibility that you could become a different person by thinking about it, which is a really powerful thing. And not everybody believes that, right? Mm-hmm. So I think the first thing to understand is that personality is plastic. There is no firm definition for who you are and who you must be. There. Are some ways in which you're very much uh, probably similar to your five-year-old self. There's probably a lot of ways in which you're a really, really different person. And that's actually, that's a good thing. That means we can change, we can all change. So when we think about how we've automatically responded to different circumstances, again, independent of whether or not it turned out well, Mm -hmm. but just what did we do? What decisions did we make? uh, Did we even recognize it as a decision at the time? And then did I decide that in the right way? Okay, if I was to get a do-over, what would I do differently? Right. And then to think through that, because one of the most powerful circuits that we have is around our mirror neurons and doing role play. Mm -hmm. And this is another area where professional development doesn't take role playing seriously enough writ large. Um, Role playing sounds like playing, sounds like goofing off or acting or something that's not very serious. Right. But to actually think through different scenarios and imagine yourself doing the right thing is really powerful. So here's a funny thing. I actually use this trick with my four-year-old. So, it, everybody knows it's really important to set expectations, right? So, we're going to finish watching this episode of Paw Patrol and then we're going to go upstairs to go uh, to go to sleep, right? Um, and th- that helps with compliance, right? But that only helps a little bit because inevitably what you find is the, the episode ends and then you, you know, they're like, no, 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 I just want one more, right? So, here's a cool trick that I use that actually has proven very effective is that I'll say, hey, Max, before I put on this episode, I want you to tell me what are you going to say to me Mm. when this episode Mm. is over? Mm. And he says, I'm going to say, thanks for the show, Daddy. It's time for us to go upstairs for Night Night. And I'll be like, that's exactly right. I'll give him a high five. Now, this doesn't get 100% compliance, right? You, know, you still have some winding that, that, that can happen. But the compliance rate is dramatically higher. It's like, it's, it's, it's a little over 50%, I'd even say. Mm. And the fact that fully half of the time mm. when the, the fun thing is over, he'll look to me and say, like, okay, Dad, It's time for us to go and do the next thing. It's like, oh, this is amazing, right? (laughs) And and, and I wouldn't have gotten that without role-playing. So to come back to the point I was making about role-playing, the important part to do here when you reflect uh, is to not reflect on outcomes, because people obsess about outcomes. They Mm -hmm. beat themselves up, sometimes unnecessarily, about things that turned out poorly, Mm -hmm. and they give themselves too much credit and praise Mm -hmm. for things that turned out well. And they do the same of other people. They make the mistake of thinking that other people must be good decision-makers because they had good outcomes. Mm -hmm. So I want to do whatever they did, Mm. or they must be terrible decision makers because they happen to experience bad outcomes. But like, that's actually not helpful for allowing you to become a better decision maker and learning from other people's decision quality. Mm. So anyhow, these are all, to a certain degree, very basic observations, and yet I found them incredibly eye-opening over the last couple months. They're they're fresh to me, they're new to me, and they're helping give me a new lens to go and look at my own history of decision making and become wiser over time.
1: Mm. So interesting. And there's a couple different ways I could take that. There's one, which is, I really love what you're doing for, for your child, which is allowing him to see himself in the larger world in relation to you, in relation to his future self, which yes. is really interesting. That gives him a theory of mind, which yes. is really important for kids to understand. It's like, where, where do I fit into this thing? Where do I fit in relation to myself? And then the other part is the reflecting off of what you just said, the most effective work that I've done in that regard and analyzing my decisions has been doing what so-called shadow work essentially looking at the at, at my shadow at the at the things that through socialization process I kind of put off the parts that I wouldn't rather look at myself but then looking at those parts of myself that, and then kind of integrating them into my conscious mind has allowed me to stop. Because, as you said, a lot of people look at other people and say, oh, they did really well. Those outputs are really good. And, oh, those outputs are really bad. those They must be bad people. It's like that's just a reflection of their own uh, internal issues that they had in their own childhood and all these different things. Um, what do you think about either of those things?
0: <laughs> so it's interesting Is that my my knee-jerk reaction is that it's kind of mixed, that we, we've all got things that are difficult to know about ourselves, and either we, we know that we're trying not to think about them or we haven't spent enough time reflecting to know that it's even a topic that we're trying to avoid. Yeah, um,
1: those are the biggest ones, I think.
0: <laughs> one thing that was really interesting for me professionally was when I was at Facebook, they're big believers in StrengthsFinder, if you've read that book or gone through that methodology. Uh, let me try and summarize it for you here. Which is that most people in their professional life focus on the areas where they're They're good at. Oh, okay, interesting. Right, and they'll sort of obsess about that, right? Because they'll know what they're good at, but they don't. they'll, They'll generally refuse coaching. Uh, around the things that they're good at because that's uh, already what something I'm good at and then you think about performance reviews where is most of the emotional energy in a performance review spent? Is it in thinking about the things you're doing well or things that thinking about the areas in need of improvement? The vast majority of the emotional response to a performance review is in the areas in need of improvement mm-hmm. right? because we're very defensive like, and, and we want to be at least baseline competent in kind of everything. It hurts to be told there's this thing that would be useful for you to be good at that you're not good at like Mm -hmm. nobody wants to be told that Mm -hmm. and so we end up obsessing about our weaknesses and spending disproportionate amount of our effort trying to become at least baseline competent in everything and it turns out this is mostly a waste of time Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a handful of things that uh, are table stakes Uh, The ability to communicate Mm -hmm. with other people, the ability to have some baseline level of empathy for other people, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Where if you don't have those, you're just going to be very difficult to work with professionally. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of other areas where it it might be nice for you to be stronger in those, but you can either backfill with teammates who can bring that uh, to bear or you can move yourself to a role where those things matter less. Mm -hmm. Where you should be focusing most of your time is in areas where you're, Uh, already not only pretty good but very very strong Mm. and you should be seeking to get coaching Mm. on the areas where not where you're weak but where you're crazy strong Mm. to get even stronger Mm. and i think for me the eye-opener there was the plainly obviously true statement that olympians have coaches Right. Mm -hmm. Because we want to think of ourselves as professionals that, oh, I've gotten further far enough along. I've got enough experience. I have enough education. Like uh, I I shouldn't need coaching and mentoring. That's for the junior people. The answer is no, 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 no. The way that you get to that very highest level of performance Mm -hmm. is is, is through coaching and continuous development. Mm -hmm. So instead of resting on our laurels uh, around the areas where we're strong finding ways to become crazy strong in those things Mm -hmm. uh, ends up being a much better use of time. Mm -hmm. And this actually comes, uh, this devolves down to one of the least intuitive and most powerful findings of the field of economics, which is the law of comparative advantage, Mm -hmm. right? Mm And and this is, again, very plainly stated, but has very unintuitive outcomes, which is that if you're good at two things, A and B, and you're a little bit better at A than B, and you're better at both A and B than anyone else, Mm -hmm. um, let's say you're 10% better at A than you are at B, how much of your time should you spend on A versus B? Mm -hmm. And sort of the intuitive answer is, well, you should probably spend, I don't know, like Mm, call it 70% of your time on A and 30% of your time on B because it's important to spend some time on B because you're better at B than anyone else. Love compared to advantage says, no, you've got to spend 100% of your time oh, on A, yeah, right? Yeah. And oh, no. forget B. It's yeah. like, and even though you're better at B than everything else, yeah. right? Um and, and I think applying that law of economics to your personal life means finding those areas where you can add disproportionate value and finding ways to uh, add even more value and e- level up even further on those things, which frankly is also a lot more fun mm-hmm. because g- generally speaking, the areas where we're, we have superpowers, the areas where we're really good, we're really good at because we enjoy doing. So yeah. we do it a lot, it which means flows. we get a lot of practice, which means we, we become good, which means yeah. it's even more pleasant when we do it, right? And so you get these positively reinforcing cycles yeah. there. Um, And so it's interesting to me that, again, in common professional development, that's a little bit rarer. You don't spend most of the time in a performance review, for instance, talking about what are the things that you're unnaturally good at and how do we bring even more resources to bear to get you to be even better at these things. It's all about like, well, what are you screwing up, Mm, right?
1: (laughs) And that that goes into the basic, I think it was Kahneman who said this as well, that we focus more on loss than we do on on gain. Yeah. 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 And then something other, an important nuance I think you said, which was really important that I want to get out is uh, that when you're talking about core skills like communication, um, uh, you know, empathy, uh, theory of mind, all these things, those are things you want to do focus on improvement. But if you're talking about maybe skills that you're really good at, for example, like sales versus coding or something like that you really want to focus on the good one on the one that you're already good at and go whole hundred percent into that rather than trying yeah. to pick up like 1500 different skills and try to make money off of them that might be fine for your hobbies or things you know you want to do on the side to get out of work but yeah that's really interesting yeah um so you mentioned your you you have a spiritual practice and it's a and um you're talking about uh, the the Quakers, and you're you're a Quaker, right? That's right. Can you talk more about how uh, how that's played a role in your life, and how you found that, and and um, and more about what? Because I imagine a lot of our listeners don't really know what exactly Quakerism is. Mm-hmm.
0: So I, I I found it uh, somewhat unusually by getting involved in a federal lawsuit. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I was the executive director of a nonprofit called the Online Policy Group, and we provided uh, actually, the world's only free donation based co location facility for mm. other nonprofits. And we had mm. about 130 different organizations that hosted their servers with us, everything from the Special Olympics to the Esperanto language organization <laughs> to a Bay Area a, a news organization called IndieBay. Um, and during the, this time period when I was executive director of the organization, um, An interesting thing happened, which is that Hacker broke into the internal systems of Diebold Election Systems, Mm -hmm. which is a manufacturer of touchscreen voting devices. Now, Diebold had been explaining to the press uh, a number of different things, like that it was impossible to update the software after it had been approved, Mm -hmm. that it was impossible to create a paper roll indicating who had voted how, right? That that, that could be used for reconciling, right? Um, and, And while they were making these public statements and warranties about their devices, internal mailing lists inside Diebold were discussing Many times that they had actually illegally updated this software on the voting machines after it had been right. certified about the easy ways that they could have added paper integration. So anyhow, so a hacker broke in and got access to some of these very interesting mailing list uh, discussions and then sent them out to different organizations for republication. Right. Um, So a pair of uh, Quaker students at Swarthmore um, went and published these on on their their website there. And um, Diebold at this point took a very peculiar uh, action. They decided to simultaneously claim that the entire thing was a fabrication and was made up. And Diebold employees definitely didn't write any of this. And that because it was written by Diebold employees that they owned the full copyright to it and that they needed you to take it down immediately because they owned the copyright on it, right? a little bit of trying to have their legal cake and eat it too, right? (laughs) Um, And most of the sites complied, a handful including that of this Swarthmore student didn't. IndieBay, which was the website that was hosted on one of our, our servers at OPG, had uh, a web page that linked to this archive. They didn't actually host it themselves. Mm. Deeble took an even stranger action at this point where they issued uh, IndieBay a cease and desist saying that having a hyperlink to the archive yeah, well, on so their web page was a copyright different. violation under DMCA. Right. IndieBay is actually, I'll be honest, a bunch of anarchists, and oh. so they did what any anarchist group does, and they just ignored it, right? Uh, <laughs> but, but we became aware that they had this. Yeah. Um, Diebold then did something even stranger. They issued us, yeah. the upstream <laughs> ISB, the co-location host, uh, a cease and desist, yeah. to go on and, and basically unplug their server with oh. all of their sites and all of their pages because they had a, a, a page right. on there that had a hyperlink to an archive oh. with this uh, sensitive material, right? Um, We called up our friends at uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. We sent them a a pretty sternly worded four-point legal Mm FU, like you're off your rocker. You're accusing us of tertiary copyright (laughs) infringement. That isn't a thing. Go away. At this point, Diebold did something really extraordinary. They went to our upstream ISP, Hurricane Electric, <laughs> and basically demanded that Hurricane Electric unplug the entirety of our co-location project, what? right? Um, <laughs> at this point, I got mad. Yeah. And so <laughs> and so the, the EFF and I teamed up, and we uh, sued them in federal court mm. for uh, what hadn't yet been tested in court, which was DMCA 512 mm. Section F, which says you can't abuse the protections of DMCA to issue takedown notices um, when, when you know that it's not actually a copyright violation. And Hurricane Electric is not guilty of quaternary copyright infringement because such a thing can't possibly exist, right? right. Uh, and, and, and we were, we had we basically won, and it was getting to the point where the, the judge would decide an amount. Um, when, when we went to press and we let the press know that Diebold, in order to cover up uh, their mm. mal, corporate malfeasance, was trying to unplug the Special Olympics. Mm. That they decided it would be in their interest to settle uh, out of court. But this was actually <laughs> after um, the, the decision had already been made. and For many years after that, um, we were listed in google.com slash dmca.html about like why you shouldn't just spuriously issue copyright notices. Anyhow, long story long, yeah. as part of this, I found out that two of the co-plaintiffs in this federal lawsuit were Quaker. And I thought, that's weird. I thought those were like those guys who hate technology and ride around on buggies oh, and like, that's... but right, but they're hosting websites. So clearly they can't be that. So I started Googling, like what the heck do these Quaker people believe? And the more that I read, the more I thought it was all totally reasonable. There's no part at which um, you you find out. Oh, actually, we believe that God lives on the dark side of the moon and is made out of green cheese. And like, you know, and there's there, yeah. there's no. You know, oh, and here's the part we need to be embarrassed about because it's sort of weird or yeah. anything like that. Um, a lot of the precepts were uh, totally reasonable. Like, people should be nice to each other. That there's this uh, spark that you want to can, can call humanity, you can call God, whatever that exists in all of us, you know, independent of what we believe and that that should be respected okay that doesn't sound crazy i mean war is probably bad because it means you'll be you know say shooting god right and that doesn't sound good you know you should tell the truth right Mm -hmm. um and that it's helpful to quietly reflect Mm -hmm. on what the truth might be and to deliberate it with other people and that Mm -hmm. that's a useful exercise like Mm -hmm. okay wait none of that sounds crazy that all sounds totally perfectly reasonable Mm -hmm. and so i went to my first quaker meeting and sitting there in the meeting um was Eric, who uh, runs all of the introductory computer science education at Stanford. So I'm like, okay, these guys are definitely not anti-technology, like some of of the world's best technologists might be Quaker. so, so yeah it was interesting to reflect on and then to, to take it back to business principles it's very interesting to see how Quaker meeting for business works mm-hmm. so the way that it works is that Quakers don't really believe that there are particular individuals who have a position of authority to say what God thinks what the Bible thinks anything like that so it's it's they they sort of this shared responsibility everyone who's there all the members have this equal responsibility to the truth mm-hmm. right um, and so the way they run their meetings for business is that there'll be a consensus on what is the agenda, what are the set of things that we're going to go and talk about. And then they make sure that everyone is heard. And then the job of the clerk of the meeting is to record mm. what the overall sentiment in the room is, making sure that everyone's been heard. Because it turns out, this is not the same thing as like unanimous voting. Right. It's it's making sure that everyone said their piece. Yeah and can get consensus around the right thing to do, even if it's the opposite of the thing that you wanted to be done. Most people are okay with the decision getting made uh, to the opposite of what they want, provided they've gotten a fair shake, Mm -hmm. right? They've had a chance to say their piece.
1: This goes directly back to two two times we've had this conversation where we talked about inputs and outputs, and particularly this one goes on to the speech input, uh, where everybody gets their ability to say what they need to say. even though the output might not be what they want, but everybody's gotten their fair share, which right. makes everybody feel great. That's essentially. right. Yeah.
0: People are most often angry when they feel like they haven't been respected mm. as a part of the process, as an equal participant, that they haven't had a chance to, to, to be heard, mm. right? Um, people are surprisingly good at adapting to expectations. And you can come in with a terrible piece, this almost goes back to the mid-quarter bit, yeah. you can come in with a terrible bit of news and somebody will be sad, But then, um, as that plays out, they They will adapt to that bad news very quickly and 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 kind of roll with it because we're we're incredibly adaptable creatures it's Mm -hmm. one of the uh defining characteristics of the the human species and so if you can set uh expectations really clearly around process around how this is going to work around likely outcomes Mm -hmm. uh, people people subscribe to that and they're okay with that
1: but what they're not okay with is expectations that are arbitrary and that are unclear and that kind of get stuck in because of various reasons basically yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. so interesting so i'd love to go keep on going with the the business quaker meeting um theme uh so is this you're sitting around oh no that was like the business of quaker meetings themselves like the the administration of them
0: well so so the way that it works Uh. is that there's what's called meeting for worship Uh. and quakers get all together in a very plain room there's no altars there's no fancy statues or Mm -hmm. anything like that there's just a bunch of chairs in a plane room similar to where we're sitting right now um, and you sit down and you're quiet mm-hmm. and when you feel moved to speak you can stand up and say whatever you feel moved to speak and then sit down Um, anyone can and if nobody feels moved to speak then it's totally okay you might spend the whole hour quiet Uh, that's cool too (laughs) uh, (laughs) and and, and that's the service there's there's no sermon there's no hymns there's no you know readings from a holy book and there's nobody telling you what you need to do or not do what you need to believe or not believe um it's expected that you're spending that time in earnest contemplation of the truth Mm -hmm. and you can do that however you want
1: that sounds like something really cool. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah.
0: wait, that's not crazy at all. Yeah, like, <laughs> there's there's no incense, there's no gongs, uh, there's no chanting. It's just it, it's very straightforward in that sense.
1: And so you were talking before about how Quakers used to prostatize, prostatize but now they don't. And you had some thoughts about why that was.
0: Yeah, first I just want f- to finish the thread on yeah. meetings for business. Yeah. So uh, what will happen is that after a meeting for worship. Um, there'll be a, once a month, there'll be a, a meeting uh, for worship on the occasion of business, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and, oh, and, and so after the meeting, they'll, they'll gather together, um, they'll present the agenda, and then people will sit and reflect on the first item on the agenda and when anyone feels moved to speak about that agenda topic, they'll stand up and say their piece and then the clerk, at the point that they feel like everyone's probably said their piece, they'll record whether or not there was consensus about a topic, what that consensus was, and they'll move the room on to the next meeting, on to the next item in the agenda, right? And and so a meeting for business is an extension of the meeting for worship, right? And so it's uh, that sort of almost worshipful sense of wanting to seek the truth quietly where needed to collect input from everyone in the room is actually a really interesting way of thinking about making a difficult decision at work and making sure that everyone has said their piece even people who are more quiet more reticent to go and speak up I'm a loudmouth I speak up very very quickly and and the problem with people like me is that if you put me into a room of 10 people and you ask the room a question you're gonna get an answer from me but you might end up drowning out not hearing the very interesting inputs from other people in the room. So And, ma-
1: and the way that they, the way that, that that's gotten around in uh, Quaker meeting is that everybody can say their piece? Or how did they?
0: Yeah. So oh. it, so it, one person speaks at a time. Uh-huh. Uh, you're not supposed to, what another, there's a couple interesting subtle bits in here. You're not supposed to address other people in the room. Mm. Right. so yeah. you address the clerk you address the room mm-hmm. you don't address the other people in the room so mm-hmm. it doesn't and, and you're also not really supposed to stand up and and and, and respond to another people so mm-hmm. uh, person right so you're responding to ideas you're not responding to people. Interesting. And that actually <laughs> maps to something that's really important in business is to be hard on ideas, but light on people, yeah. right? And
1: also spirituality. <laughs> right,
0: right. And, yeah, yeah. But, but but it can be hard to keep that in mind sometimes yeah. when it's uh, an you emotional do. topic. It's one that you're really vested in. Uh, to keep things focused on the ideas. And certainly we see this in in terms of like the quality of online discourse that's out there is Mm -hmm. that uh, very quickly things devolve to ad hominems and the like, and people lose sight of debating the actual idea and getting to uh, a a joint outcome everyone can feel good about.
1: Mm. So interesting. This plays directly into what I was talking about, which is, or what the theme I've been exploring, which is how does a spiritual life manifest itself materially? And and this seems like Quaker's already figured it out uh and that business seems to be doing well in business is a byproduct of of doing right in uh in spiritual life. Uh and So yeah, I'd love to. to,
0: I want to be a little bit careful about that thought because um, that sort of gets back to the concern I have that some people look at a positive outcome for a person Mm -hmm. and they assume that oh that person must have done things the right way, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's there's a lot of desire to run after popular, successful people in in business and in in, and Hollywood and the like, and to say well whatever it is that you're doing it must be good because it worked for you. So I want to go do that thing too. Like oh you eat a lot of broccoli, cool. All right the 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 path to success is eating lots of broccoli. (laughs) Now, I I certainly don't want to discourage anyone from eating broccoli, (laughs) but um, oftentimes a lot of the decisions that were made by that person may not be consequential to that success. Mm. And there's a lot of component of luck that's in there too. So I want to be a little bit careful about taking people who maybe were successful in business Mm. and putting them on a pedestal. And certainly I I, I would be very shy myself about making a statement that they must have their spiritual lives Mm. totally figured out to be Mm. so successful in (laughs) business No, having known a number of billionaires, um, just it's not always the yeah. case that uh-huh. they have that part of their lives worked on.
1: Totally, and well, that's that's the that's the intention of the show is to get try to pull apart and tease apart all those different factors. And that, yeah, obviously not. If you're if you're rich and successful, it does not mean that you already have <laughs> you already have your spiritual life in order. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I do think
0: this that, is God's way of giving you a high five. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
1: But I I do think that there is a a like abundance in business is there it's like one of many signs that something that there that you have you are working on what needs to work on in your own life in order to clear out maybe blockages towards uh uh, seeing the abundance and seeing the the bountifulness of a life around us basically um what do you think of that
0: uh, I, I I appreciate the optimism uh-huh. with which this statement is made, uh-huh. and uh, I, I'd like for it to be true.
1: Mm, yeah, but I mean, and of course, like people are in difficult situations in their lives that have you know that are not a result of their actions as well. There are things that are Absolutely. totally separate as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I do, I am, I am optimistic about that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you are can you talk more about this? The the um, Quaker the How, why Quakers stopped proselytizing and maybe even the history of Quakerism because I learned it at one point, but I've forgotten it now. It's like the whole you said the whole state of Pennsylvania was were Quakers right?
0: Well, mm. that, that's maybe slightly overstating, but it's it's named uh, Pennsylvania Penn's Woods. William Penn was a famous American Quaker, mm. and Quakers played a really important role in American history and generally the some of the parts that we can feel most proud about. Mm. So, for instance, the abolitionist movement to get rid of slavery in this country uh, was largely led and pushed hard by Quakers, mm. right? Um, So Quakerism started in the mid-17th century, so the mid-1600s, and it was largely, uh, I view it as a spiritual continuation of the Protestant movement, Mm. right? So you had had, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years um, uh, where the people with access to the source texts of the Christian religion were few and far between. But after Constantine's rule in about 400 AD, uh, Christianity became very popular, and that led to this very bizarre situation where you had lots of people believing a thing without really knowing what they were believing, per se, because they themselves couldn't read those texts, and they, they leaned on the educated priests and the monks to perform that interpretation. So there was this power dynamic where there were the people who God spoke directly to and who could read God's word directly, and then uh, the masses who, who had to figure it out from whatever the the, the priest wanted to tell them. Mm. right? And, and And the result of this, somewhat naturally, was a bit of a convenient forking between what was written in those books and what other people said was written in those books. Right. Uh, And so you could start doing things like uh, selling forgiveness for sins Mm -hmm. on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. Right. Which, hey, wait, this Bible thing says nothing about anything like that. Right. Uh, But how do you know if you can't read? Right. Mm -hmm. And and one of the reasons why you can't read is that books aren't commonplace. It's very expensive to go and produce books. There's Mm -hmm. only a handful of them in the world. So Gutenberg comes around and not only introduces the printing press, which of course everybody knows, but um, one of the interesting bits is one of the first works he goes and produces is not just a copy of the Latin Bible, but the Vulgar Bible, uh, and the Vulgar yeah. means in the common tongue, not that it had like F words or yeah. anything, like right? <laughs> um, and, and so the the, the mind blowing part about that was that people now not only uh, could Uh, afford to access a Bible, but they could afford to access a Bible that was written in a language that they actually understood, Mm. right? Because like gosh, I, I could give you access to really critical texts in ancient Greek, but like that's not super helpful, right? <laughs> if if it's in a language you understand, then you could actually start going through and say like, hey, that's really interesting that you, dear holy person, are asking me to do thing X when this Bible that I'm now able to read says nothing about that, uh, right? Yeah. And, and so you get you get a revolution, you get this pushback, you get people who are protesting against the church that became the Protestant Reformation, right? Mm-hmm. With Martin Luther nailing his 99 theses to the to the door of the church right Um, now what's interesting to me is that you can look at that and say, but you didn't go far enough, uh, Be- because nowhere in there did it was it meaningfully discussed that Jesus said, uh, you've got to meet in this nice thing called a church, you've got to do it on Sundays, you've got to have a priest mm-hmm. who I- I'm going to talk to especially because I bless this priest class, and you should figure out from them what, what to think and what to believe, right? Uh, no, it doesn't say any of that, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so, what if you were to actually just take a look at the good advice that's in there, you know, independent of whether you you happen to be Christian, I think there's some good advice that you can find in there Um, and and just run with that and sort of discard a lot of the history traditions and some would say, you know, that those things are positive, some would say those things are more like cruft that Uh were added on Um, but if if the idea is, if it was interesting to throw some of it away, why not throw all of it away Uh right, and just go straight on directly into the truth, right, Uh and that's basically what George Fox uh, did in the, in the mid-1600s, um, and, and this, of course, was uh, tremendously heretical for both the Catholics and the Protestants. Everyone hated the Quakers, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. And actually the, the, the name was designed to be uh, a bit of a humorous pejorative, that like, well, you must be just quaking with zeal to go and do the right thing, and so they, it was actually just called the Society of Friends, uh, but, but they decided to take on, uh, to sort of reclaim this pejorative term, uh, Quakers, as, as, as their own. Uh. Yeah. Um, so, like a lot of rejects from Europe, they came here to the United States, uh, right? <laughs> so, uh, they were, were, were land populated by by rejects, like, <laughs> like the like the Pilgrims, right? <laughs> um, and, uh, and and they found that there was there was plenty of land, plenty of space for for uh, hardworking people to to do well here, um, and and grew in political influence pretty dramatically. Um, and then, yeah, for for reasons that aren't clear to me, around a hundred years ago or so. Um, Quakers stopped proselytizing quite as much. And so uh, it wasn't, I I think, any sort of a formal decision by the the church, but um, people just stopped feeling compelled to tell other people about Quakerism. And as a result, things shifted over to where most Quakers were Quakers because they were born Quakers, mm. and so they had learned it from their, their families. And it became much rarer for people to find out about Quakerism. Um, and I, I'm in that kind of rare class of people who through this uh, federal lawsuit and <laughs> ended up finding out about Quakerism, attending a meeting and saying, this feels really right for me. I want to become a member here, and then uh, you uh-huh. know, formally joined.
1: Interesting. And uh, that's, is, is there a special formalization formal process like?
0: well so, so the, the joke about Quakers is they do everything through committee right yeah because <laughs> there can't just be one person who like gets to make the call right yeah. and so um, you you meet with a clearness committee uh, who basically sits down to you just like so tell me what? why do you want to become a Quaker okay like neat story what do you think it means to be a Quaker mm-hmm. right have you thought about this at all and they just want to make sure that you're making that de- decision eyes wide open right mm-hmm. um, and that you understand what it is that Quakers believe and if if you do those things, then they recommend at the next meeting for business, they add an agenda item to add you to the member role, right? Mm-hmm. And the, everyone is meeting for business, <laughs> it says their piece, and if it's, if there's a consensus that it should be approved, then it becomes approved, right? Oh, yeah. So I, I think the, the sort of fun critique of uh, how Quakers decide things is that uh, it's it's ponderous, right? Quakers are not fast, turn on a dime, uh-huh. uh, some sort of folks, they're, they're deliberative bodies, uh-huh. right? So if, if you're frustrated by how Quakers uh, make decisions is generally because it uh, it can take them a really long time, yeah. uh, but then they can feel really good about it. So here's a fun bit. Even to this day, there's a bunch of different forms and the like that are different for Quakers. Mm. So for instance, a Quaker mm. wedding, hey, wait, you don't have like one specially blessed person who gets up mm. and, 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 and can preside over the ceremony. Um, rather, everyone goes and signs the marriage the <laughs> certificate right because they're, they're they're all priests yeah, right <laughs> so Quakerism yeah. sort of turns everybody into a priest right uh-huh. um,
1: <laughs> I love that and it's like a decentralization factor yes. for, for religious you get insight. to talk to
0: God you get to talk to God <laughs> you get to so talk cool. to God right yeah. like yeah. and, and, and if, if you feel like uh, the, the truth is something different than this other person then, then let's talk it out yeah, right yeah, and there's yeah. a there's a sense that we can come to consensus about truth
1: how does that feel? fit into because now you're starting a company how many people are you now
0: in your oh it's super small so uh-huh. formally there are three of us who are full-time employees there's another two people who are, are full-time contractors there's another about five part-time contractors
1: uh-huh. so you're still small still still in this kind of relatively like easy to make decisions Not too we're
0: much. literally yeah. working out of my garage for context so we are <laughs> cool. a Silicon Valley garage startup Got it. oh in Silicon Valley yes <laughs> <All> right, <cool. laughs> very literally we are a Silicon Valley garage startup that's great yeah um,
1: but you you have, you've had time at larger organizations and stuff yes. like that. Yeah. How uh, this kind of, I guess, I'm not quite clear in what I'm trying to say, but there there's like an executive kind of like, we're going to make the decision um, thing. I imagine I imagine this happens in larger organizations where it's like one person is responsible for making the decision and stuff like yeah. that, and then comparing that to the kind of Quaker everybody. How do you see those two roles?
0: So business often requires relatively fast decision making mm-hmm. lots of little decisions that happen on a day-to-day basis there's occasionally like really big decisions that need to get made like key forks and strategy um, but business is also uh, so much of what gets done is mundane mm-hmm. there's just you know a, a million tiny decision decisions you need to make every day so the important part there is not that you have a group deliberation about every tiny little thing. Otherwise, you, you wouldn't really g- get anywhere. Rather, there is to be set a clear set of values and principles by which you should conduct yourself. The operating system for decision-making is clear and consistent and aligned. Mm-hmm. And any time that we see that decisions are getting made that don't seem in line with those values, with that operating uh, manual, we, we have to ask ourselves, well, um, do we want to change our values? Do we want to rethink this, or was this a case where we, we kind of made the wrong call and now need we, we need to undo it, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. And so, in, in that sense, it's it's distributing the decision making to to the team, but uh, doing that through a, a common set of principles. And this was actually something that I observed reasonably well at uh, at the highest levels of both Facebook and and, and Google. Um, uh, Google's head of infrastructure, uh, Urs Holtzler, has been there uh, from almost day one. He was like employee 12 or something ridiculous like that. He's still mm-hmm. with the company, still runs all of Google's infrastructure. And one of the many interesting things that Urs has put out there is an operating manual. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you can read it to understand how does Urs make decisions. What does he value? What does he not value? How is he going to communicate with you? How might you perceive that as rude or not rude? Mm-hmm. So you've got all these things in advance. Um, of, of meeting with him one of the other useful things that does is that allows you to then uh, Back to mirror neurons have a little baby Urs in your head uh, Anytime you're thinking about things and think like well, what would he think about this? How would he go and decide on this and when I was at Facebook? Mm-hmm. Uh, Jay Parikh who runs all of infrastructure for Facebook has pretty similarly inculcated in all of his lieutenants a strong sense of how Jay makes decisions mm-hmm. And what's powerful about that is that allows you to scale as a leader because then everyone's got a little mental model of you and what you're likely to say with them, even if you're not there. Right. Mm. Um, So uh, ideally, by the time things make it to you, it's because there was something about the mental model of you that made this particular decision unclear. Mm. Uh, which is either because fundamentally it's a difficult thing and it's in between fuzzy areas and you do need to make a decision, or it's because you didn't do a complete enough job mm-hmm. going and in, in specifying. Um, you know how you go and decide this thing. So I've also had a chance to observe when the converse is true. I worked at another large company, I'm not gonna specify which one at this time, um, where there was a, a, an executive in charge of the organization for which none of his lieutenants had a clear mental model of how did this person make decisions. Mm-hmm. And the result of that was that uh, meeting with him was a randomizing factor. People would come in with what seemed like sure bets, easy things and they'd get thrown out and asked to work on something wildly different, right? Mm-hmm. I've no doubt that this individual isn't crazy. I, 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 I strongly believe they likely have a fully internally consistent mental model of the world and what they value. But what they hadn't done is communicate that to anybody effectively. To so know, not yeah. even his lieutenants, yeah. you'd meet with them to go and get their pre-clearance on things, and they'd have no idea how the meeting would land. Mm-hmm. You know, I contrast that with Facebook, where you'd get prepped before you met with Zuckerberg uh-huh. to go and talk through an idea And his lieutenants had a very good understanding of what Zuck would likely value, what, what he wouldn't value, where he'd want to go and spend time and focus. So like
1: clarity, being very clear with yourself, which then allows you to be clear with others. Yes, Mm -hmm. precisely
0: so. But that's a way to scale yourself and your impact Mm -hmm. at both a small company and at a large company.
1: And this makes me have a question maybe for a future episode of essentially how do you apply that to remote work? Because now a lot of remote companies are starting and how do you actually uh, build that same type of of clarity within yourself and then express that through a slightly different medium, which is uh, remote tools and stuff like that.
0: That's right. And so I think clearly setting, explicitly clearly setting Mm -hmm. that culture, setting that operating system, answering things, how do we decide? How do we act? What does mm-hmm. it mean to act within the values of this organization? And to walk people through case studies, which mm-hmm. are a, a form of role play, mm-hmm. right? To go mm-hmm. back to the role-playing bit, mm-hmm. um, especially to walk people through things that that might be to somebody not familiar with your co- company culture, unclear which way should, you should go, or like a- absent knowing more you, you'd choose A. But here actually we're going to do this weird thing at company B where we choose B. Mm-hmm. Um, highlighting the ways that your company culture or your organization's culture might be different than the culture somebody's coming in from are really, really a uh, handy tool state to, to give somebody. Mm-hmm. Because I think like a lot of people when you think about values they end up devolving the things that, that sound good but are unactionable and in particular because they're un, undifferentiated. Mm-hmm. Like uh, we we treat each other with respect. We act with integrity. Like it's like uh, uh, okay, yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah. What what's really fun is you go and read through like Enron's values, right? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Enron a had idea. a value sheet, Whoa. right? They had a set of core principles that they published about how they operated they didn't live by any of them, Whoa. right? And so there's yeah. um, the, the point of having values isn't to publish something that sounds nice. It's actually to define your unusual operating system and how you will decide differently mm-hmm. than somebody coming in from a different environment, from a from pure organization.
1: And this is what uh, Sid, the CEO of GitLab, does really well. They have all of their, and speaking about remote work, they have all of their organization and his thinking and everybody else below them. They're all just putting their thinking on this document that, that like... Clear. If you want to meet, meet with Sid, you go read this document, and it's all there. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so cool. This has been a really great conversation, and I want I want people to. Figure out where to find out more about you, but then also I think it'd be cool to offer them opportunities to find out more about Quakerism too, and like to find out more about what uh, what Quakers are. And, and
0: sure, so I, I would advise people on the on the latter bit to just use Google and search for Quaker, right? And and, and it's not the oat company. The oat company actually stole. Uh, uh, and it's really funny because like could 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 you imagine like a cereal company like Jesus Corn Flakes, right? And like M- M- Muhammad Chocolate Donuts, okay. like like no, like that'd be awful, right? and yet like eh, well, the, not a lot of people are Quaker anymore so we'll just like steal the name of this religion and put it on the front of a box of oats Whoa. right it's, and with William
1: Penn too right is that William Penn on the box uh, or, it's or,
0: some caricature okay, of okay. like okay. an imagined wholesome Quaker man um, <laughs> but it was it was actually just a conglomeration of uh, oat producers who were trying to find a way to uh, sell more oats by uh, having them be understood by the public to be as wholesome as a Quaker man was um, <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> it's like, okay it's really weird but yeah so Google search for Quaker, uh, don't, don't worry about the Quaker State Motor Oil or, or Quaker Oats. Actually, look for the religion um, and, and, and see what you find there. In terms of Med Quarter, similarly, you can just do a Google search for Med Quarter, M E D C O R D E. E R So, like medical recorder. You search for it on either the app stores on iOS or Android uh, or on the web. We're just at midquarter.com. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for information on me, I'm David Weekly. That's L Y, not L E Y. I'm not the Texas realtor. So, don't <laughs> yell at me if you've got mold in your home. I've gotten, I've gotten <laughs> angry emails from uh, David Weekly, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> home, home residents. But um, I'm on Twitter as D Weekly. I'm on Skype as D Weekly. I'm on Facebook as D Weekly. Um, you know, pretty much ever on the internet as D Weekly. Cool.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Cool. cool. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please find me on Um Sign up for the blog. Let me know what your thoughts are on Twitter at III. I, I, I. Uh, hope you have a great day. Please tune in Mondays and Fridays. I release episodes twice a week, Mondays and Fridays. Uh, so have a great day.